The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1. And this evening, we're continuing our study on the doctrine of the church, and we're looking into another of the very important aspects of church life. Our subject is the purity of the church, which by now I know that you recognize we're talking about church discipline. And we spent a good deal of time on this subject, uh, five messages a month or so ago, and And then we had a message on this last Sunday evening. And it is just a a very important topic because the holiness of God's people is reflective of the nature of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible teaches that we are to be imitators of Christ. And the more that we're like him, the more that we bring glory to his name through our obedience to him. Now, if you look in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse number 21... The Apostle Paul says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, and made a minister. Now we notice in that scripture that Paul says that we were once alienated from God, that at one time we were God's enemies and our status as enemies of God was demonstrated by our wicked works. Now in writing to the Colossians, he tells them now that they have been reconciled to God because of their faith in Christ, because of the blood of Christ. They have returned to, I guess you would call it, returned to the position that we were originally in in the creation, and that is that we would be holy people. Now, when we're holy, we have the mind of Christ, we're focused on his will, and as the Lord's church, that is the most important thing that we do, always doing the Lord's will. So we practice discipline in the church in order to bring people in conformity with God's will. Now, last week I told you that the word discipline comes from a Latin word, which means I learn. And so discipline is not about punishment. It's not even contained in the word, but discipline is to bring us to the place that we're more like Christ. Now, in the last message, I pointed out to you that uh, if we would faithfully obey three laws that we find in Scripture, that it would eliminate most of the harshest forms of discipline. Now, first of all, then, we talked about laws to live by. And the first law that I told you about was the law of love, that we are to love God supremely and that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And that law of love eliminates the selfishness that exists, and that is really the root cause of most of the problems that we have. And so the law of love would help us to get rid of other types of discipline. The second law that I told you about was the law of confession, that when we know that we have offended someone, that as quickly as we can, as immediately as we can, that we go to that person and we attempt to be reconciled with them so that we have no hard feelings between one another. And again, that would solve many, uh, many of the problems that we have with discipline. 
Then the third law is the law of forgiveness. And that is God, Jesus taught us that we are to forgive one another. You remember how he gave that parable about forgiveness and he showed us that God forgave us of all of our debt, uh, a tremendous debt that we owe to him. And God was willing to forgive that. And that was a model for us that we are to forgive those who have uh, erred, who have uh, offended us, th- those who have done things against us, we are to forgive them. Now, I want to go back to the place that we left off last week, and we were discussing the second part of our outline, and that is the departments of discipline. There are three areas of discipline and uh, that we need to discuss, and we were only able to cover one of these in the last message. And the first one really doesn't get very much attention, be- as the others do, because this one is usually put into some other category of church work. But really, this, this is the place that it should be because it's the beginning part of the purity of the church. This is what we call formative discipline. And formative discipline is the molding aspect of our Christian lives. This is where we learn to obey God. It's the part that teaches us how to live. It's the part that builds strength and character for a Christian. And in the New Testament, formative discipline is taught so many times that you could just practically open up your New Testament, put your finger on just about any passage that you want to, and almost invariably, it'll have something to do with the way that you live your life. And that's what formative discipline is. Now, if we spend enough time with formative discipline, we eliminate the other types. And so if churches would teach about sin, and if they would model holy lives in front of the people then there'd be much less need for the actions that we find in Matthew chapter 18 and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Formative discipline can also be described as our sanctification. It is our progressive sanctification as we grow in grace. You see, as we, as we grow in the grace of God, we are in the process of being delivered from the practice of sin. When we were saved, we were delivered from the power of sin, And one of these days, when we're glorified, we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. But as we're living here every single day, we have to be taught to be delivered from the practice of sin. And so uh, formative discipline is this. It's learning to put the old sinful man down and to keep that man in the grave where he belongs. Well, I want to move on from there because we do have a lot more to cover tonight. Unfortunately, we we are still sinners and We're at different stages of our growth in grace. And so that makes the second part of discipline necessary. And this is what we call corrective discipline. Formative discipline is the positive side of the doctrine. Corrective discipline is the negative side. And the negative, of course, happens because something has gone wrong. Now, if you're taking notes tonight, uh, you might write down this very important observation that corrective discipline will not work without a good background in formative discipline. You can't bring somebody back to the truth and where they should be if they've never been there in the first place. And so you can't have a church that practices corrective discipline unless they've learned what formative discipline is. Now, formative discipline actually teaches corrective discipline. And so if you don't have the formative, you can't have the corrective. Does everybody understand that statement? You can't have one without the other. First of all, you have to have the formative. Now, this is, though, the the kind of discipline that gets the most attention, which is kind of odd because we wouldn't really need this one so much if we paid attention to the first one. But as I've shown, we also wouldn't need it either if 
we practice those laws to live by. If that was a regular part of our everyday lives, then we wouldn't really need to deal so much with corrective discipline. So corrective discipline concerns then those that are in error. They have missed something, they've ignored something, something they don't understand, some part of their instruction has gone wrong, and so that person, that Christian, has returned to sin. Now, we've talked about that a lot. In those five sermons in May and June, we learned that there are critical steps for correcting members of the church. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and 17 through 17, give us the steps for this type of discipline. Now, if you're watching the clock tonight, you want to look at your watch and see, are we, are we not going to get out till 845? Don't worry, I'm not going to give you four more hours of sermons on that particular topic. I'm going to just count that you learned it before, you've got it down, and we don't really need to go through it again. But I do want to clear up some things with you. Uh, for us to continue the discussion, and then we'll expand on some things that we didn't learn in that first series. So he- here's what I want to to uh, accent here for us as we start this part of the lesson tonight, that as the church of Christ, number one, we have the right to correct. We have been given the right to correct in the Scriptures. By the authority of God's Word, we have the right to correct the membership of the church, to call their sins into question, to do something about that sin, and to make it right in the eyes of God. And if we do it correctly, those actions are ratified by heaven. And so we don't have to worry about overstepping our bounds and that we're intruding too much into the private lives of the membership. We have the right to do this because we are members together of the body of Christ, And every part of the body has the right to know what every other part of the body is doing. And we should welcome this type of discipline. As I've told you before, that we need accountability. And so we should welcome when people are watching over us and they're trying to help us when we sin. Uh, We need that accountability to one another. But in order for people to appreciate the fact that there is corrective discipline in the church, it has to be done right. It's not a denominational thing. It doesn't rest on any type of tradition, but it has to be based upon the Word of God. Now, number two is that we have the duty to correct. Paul commands in Philippians chapter 2, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And then listen to what he says, verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, what Christ wants is a pure church. The body here is spiritually representative of his body, and his body is pure holiness. And so this is not optional for us. And a church that doesn't do this, who lets people go on in sin, not only is the offending member in sin, but also the whole church is in disobedience to the Lord. Now, we think about that, What is the danger to the church when we're in disobedience? Well, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 ought to give us a fair warning about it. Churches that are out of compliance with God's word and out of compliance with the will of God are in danger of having their status as true churches taken away from them. And so this is a, the lack of discipline is a charge that's placed against all of us as members of the church. And if... Sin in the church is left unchecked, and we'll talk about some a little bit later, particular sins, that if they're left unchecked, then it will destroy the church from within. 
Now, we do need to understand this, that the greatest enemy of the church is not who's on the outside. The greatest enemies of the church are those that are on the inside. I mean, you look what Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18. He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. So there is no, there is no onslaught from the outside that's ever been able to overcome the church of God, and that's why it's still in existence today. You look at all the persecution that's taken place over the centuries, and nobody has ever been able to stamp out the church of the living God. But instead, what's happened is the church grows stronger in that persecution. So you can't destroy it from without, but you most certainly can destroy it from within. And that's when a church allows sin to to permeate the entire membership, just as Paul talks about leaven, leavening the whole lump. We have to watch out for that, and we have to stop sin before it affects the entire church. So you look at all the churches that never say anything about sin and never talk about how people should live. You look at all the sin that goes on and how they don't do anything about it. And so when a church comes to the place that it says, we're not going to preach about sin, then you can just mark it down. That is not a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our duty to keep a pure church by correcting sin. Thirdly, we have the motive to correct. And what is that motive? Well, all of us should know it. It's the glory of God. There is no other reason for this because when people are conformed to Christ, that's when God is glorified. He's glorified in the church. And the Bible also teaches that when we do what we're supposed to, that he will also be glorified outside of the church. Here's what Paul said, or rather Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, there are some churches that really confuse this, and they have the attitude, well, we can't show that we love sinners if we, if we try to correct them. If we don't accept them the way they are and let them do what they want to do, then we can't really show that we love them. Well, that is a sentimental love. It's not the same kind of love that we find in the Bible because our love for Christ is higher than any other love. And a love that allows sin because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or because we just don't want to deal with it, that is a love that becomes idolatrous. Whenever we put something above the will of Christ, whenever we put something in place of the will of Christ, then we are guilty of idolatry. Now, our motive here is the glory of God. And anything that's contradictory to that motive is wrong. And those things have to be moved out of the way. So formative discipline and corrective uh, discipline, they're, they're taught in the Word of God. And to be good followers of Christ and to be a true church, we have to obey Him. And that's one of the things that formative discipline does. It teaches us to obey Him. So when formative discipline is taught wrongly or when it's not taught at all, then you can never get to the place of corrective discipline. Well, there is a third type of discipline that I want to consider And uh, I pointed out last week that this third type of discipline is often considered under corrective discipline, and I think that it certainly can be. But I want to split this off into its own part, uh, take it away from corrective discipline, because here is actually an action that may cause us or will lead us to believe that the person that is under discipline is not really a child of God. And so this third type of discipline that we find in Scripture is what we call excisive discipline. Now, don't bother to go home and try to look up the word excisive in your dictionary because you won't find it. Uh, this is one of those words that uh, gets used in, 
and theological vernacular, and uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a word that gets recognized in the dictionary. Now, I've heard some pastors, preachers, religious people use words that aren't in the dictionary, and the reason they do is because they just have poor grammar. I mean, they just don't know any better, and so they make up words that aren't really words. But here's a word you won't find in the dictionary, but it is used in theological circles, and that's the word excisive. Now, the first form of discipline is the formative discipline. That, that's the first type. That's positive. The second type is corrective. That's negative. And the third type is excisive. Now, for lack of a better description, I call this particular type of discipline the negative double whammy. Now, double whammy, that, that is a word derived from the ancient Chaldean that means whoop up on you. And uh, you can look that up, and that'd be a great etymological study for you if you'd like to do that. But excise, excisive discipline means to cut out. And this is the form of discipline that is the worst of all. It's the most severe because in this type of discipline, we have to remove a person from the membership of the church. If that person hinders the fellowship of the church to the point that the name of Christ is reproached, then the Bible teaches we have to cut out the offender. And when a person uh, harms the good name of people that are in the church and cause them to be lumped in with all those that practice dishonoring evils, then that person does need to be cut out of the church. I'm reminded of the sin of David that we talked about this morning. And remember how that David had stolen the wife of Uriah and then he committed adultery with her. And then he tried to cover up that sin by having Uriah killed. And so Nathan the prophet came to rebuke him. Uh, David's sin was a terrible sin. It was a horrible reproach to the character of Jehovah God. And do you remember what, what Nathan said to David? He said, By this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Now that is a very serious offense. When a member of the church comes to the place that his actions reflect upon the holy God and, bring, and, and just drag his name through the mud, God considers that to be a very serious offense. And every Christian needs to realize this, that your actions reflect on God, just like the actions of a child reflect upon his parents. Now, you may remember in the Father's Day sermon, I made a particular point about this, that we are to honor our parents by obeying them, and we're to uh, obey them even after we leave the home, because even after we leave the home, our, our, re, our actions still reflect upon our parents. And the same thing is true of the Heavenly Father. Our sins are reflection on Him. And so there are sins that are committed in the church that they smear the good name of God and also they, they cause the enemies of the church to blaspheme. Now, do you know what happens when, when a God-hating sinner sees a Christian fall? Oh, I think you know what happens. I mean, there's no sympathy for them, is there? There's no sympathy. They say, I told you so. I told you. Your Christianity would not amount to anything. Now, it reminds me of a good example that we had in our outreach training session a few weeks ago. Uh, you may remember, those of you that came, uh, you remember the story there of a, of a man, and they were demonstrating this, a man that had uh, just become a Christian, and he decided to call his friend and tell him uh, just what a wonderful thing it was to know Christ. Now, the point of that part of the video was to, to show what a foolish thing it is to just point, just, just say this to people, that, that God has a wonderful plan for your life. 
Now, in this scene, in this, scene uh, this person had just become a Christian, so he called his buddy to tell him the good news, and he was just telling how great things would be for him if he would just trust in Christ. Well, his buddy was familiar with all of his different forays into different religions, and he knew that that's the same thing he said about all of his other religions, that all of them promised exactly the same thing. And so what do you think would happen if that person fell? Well, the, the friend who wasn't a Christian would only mock and say, I told you so. I told you. Christianity doesn't amount to anything. And so when a Christian gets down, when a Christian backslides, that just gives occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. And that mocking only gets worse. Now, looking at that from the bigger picture, uh, this is also true of scandals that you see in Christianity. Now, people on the outside don't know anything about our church. They don't have any idea what we're teaching in here and what we believe. But they know that we're religious, and they know that we claim to worship Christ. And so when they see one of the big names in the evangelical community or across the country, when one of those big names enters into sin, what do they do? They throw us into the same category with those kinds of people. They don't know what we do, and so we're just failing Christians. When you take a man like Ted Haggard, who was president of the National Association of Evangelicals, and he was found out to be using drugs and had paid for homosexual sex, what do you think the crowd does when they hear that? You get a man who's the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Well, they put all other Christians in that group. And it becomes worse when you have a, an independent Baptist like Jack Scopp just uh, some time ago who was pastor of one of the largest independent Baptist churches in America was found out to be having sex with a minor. Now, what do you think happens? Who gets the blame for that? And then you find out. You know, we're used to talking about the scandals that go on in the Roman Catholic Church. And heaven knows they have enough of that. I mean, it's every day in your paper. It's all over the place. But we tend to forget that there are these kinds of things that happen in our Baptist churches. And if you do a little bit of research on it, you'll find out that there are many independent fundamental Baptist churches that have covered up the sins of their pastors because these were supposed to be the great heroes of fundamentalism. And they just don't say anything about it. They let it go on. But that's terrible sin, and that causes people on the outside to reproach the name of Christ. And whenever that happens, then we're all in trouble. Now, what we don't want to have is our own internal scandals so that when people say something about those things that go on, they are nailing us to the wall too. And so we have to be careful about that. We don't want people to blaspheme the name of Christ by their actions. We, we don't want them to uh, tear down the name of the church or any member of the church by the bad actions that they do. So I hope that you do understand that, that it is not a light thing to parade your sins before the world. When you do that, it reflects on me, and I don't like it. And when you do that, it reflects on our church, and I don't like it. And when you do it, it reflects on the name of Jesus Christ, and none of us here ought to like it. And so we need to watch ourselves and be careful about what we do in this area of, of committing sins against the Lord. So before we ever get to that point, I mean, long before we ever get there, we need to do something about sin. And if it doesn't stop, then we only have one choice. That's get rid of the offenders, and then we just let the chips fall where they may.
So we don't relish the double whammy, but it's taught in the Scriptures, and we have to be determined to obey the Scriptures. Now, at first, we are to think about this type of discipline as being corrective discipline. I mean, we hope that the sin will stop. We hope that the person will see the seriousness of a potential action against them, and so they repent of the sin, and then they're restored to fellowship. So we can see why it would be associated with corrective discipline. And we looked at an example of that when we studied Matthew chapter 18. At the last step, after all other attempts have been made, after we've tried everything that we can do to, uh, to reconcile that person to the church, the last step, if, if nothing else works, is to remove the person from the membership. Now, the classic example we found of that was in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we looked at that scripture and broke it down in our previous studies. But let me just refresh your memory a little bit on what happened in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, in that place, the Apostle Paul was aware of a very uh, serious sin that was in the Corinthian church. And the church had allowed this sin to go on. They'd allowed it to fester. Uh, One of the members was having an illicit, adulterous, incestuous affair with his stepmother. And it was just sin that was compounding upon sin. And so Paul told the church they must do something about it. And so he said, what you need to do is to purge that person from the church and to have no fellowship with him. And that was in perfect harmony with what Jesus had taught in Matthew chapter 18. He said that a person that's guilty of sin and they won't repent, that they're to be treated as a publican and a heathen. Now, that meant that they were to be ostracized, just like the Jews when uh, one of their fellows became a, a tax collector, turncoat on his own people, they disfellowshipped with him. They wouldn't have anything to do with him. They wouldn't let him worship in the synagogue. Now, that's a very harsh step for us to exclude someone from the fellowship of the church, but it's a necessary step. And when, a, when a person goes into sin and they don't repent, it has to be dealt with because no unrepentant person has a right to be a part of the Lord's church. So we hope that what happens is that first this shocks the person into repentance. They come under this corrective discipline, and when that happens, they may come back, and we hope that they do. But then again, they may not come back. And that's when the Bible says we are to treat them as a heathen, and that means that we treat them as an unsaved person. So if they don't repent, I think the Bible's teaching us that it's safe for us to assume that they're not truly Christians because if they were then they would come back and they would repent. It would show that the grace of God has never touched their hearts if they don't repent of their sin. So you might ask me, well, what about people that have left Berean? What about those that got angry about something or they got into sin and they just left the church? Well, I really do believe that most of them probably are not really Christians. They never were saved in the first place, and that's why they wouldn't come back, and that's why they fell into these different types of sin. Well, that's one of the things that we're looking at. We have looked at this past Wednesday night in our outreach training. Uh, We had a good lesson on, and we'll talk about it again this Wednesday night, but we had a good lesson on false professions, that there are people in the church that have made false professions. And the problem may be because of an incomplete gospel that was preached in the first place. Maybe repentance wasn't taught as it should have been. And so they never really received Christ as their Savior. But this is really a terrible tragedy, that you have people in the church that have sat under the preaching of God's Word, and they continue in sin, and all the time they think that they're saved, but they're, they're taking some kind of 
soulless in that they're just backslidden Christians. Well, what people need to do is they really need to check their hearts because it'll be seriously worse for a person that sat in the church under the preaching of the Word and was never really saved. Now, people, they sit back in their comfort of their sin. They rely on a past profession that they've made. They rely on the fact that they went into the baptistry or they walked up the aisle and shook the preacher's hand, and that's their confidence. It's, it's in the act that they performed. And many of those people are not really saved. And that is a tragedy when people can sit here in the church, hear the Word of God, and not really know Christ. Well, to go on, uh, excisive discipline is sometimes called excommunication, and it does carry with it a heavy weight. Some churches prefer to call it exclusion, but it all amounts to the same thing. We don't treat it lightly. We don't do it indiscriminately. But we very carefully consider the action. And that's why Jesus gave us those steps in Matthew chapter 18. Now, when we looked at this before, I put particular emphasis uh, on the treatment of one that reaches that critical state. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul described this sin that was in the Corinthian church as one that had gone so far, he said even the heathens would never even think about doing what this person is doing. Now, that's a person that had been inside the church. He tasted the goodness of God but he turned his back on the teaching and he went off into sin. And what Paul said is that we're, the church was not to afford him any accommodation with the people of God. So we don't sympathize with a person like that. We don't go out to lunch with them. We don't do things with them like we did before. And the reason that we don't is because any other kind of activity with them undermines the authority of the church. So we have to be careful about that. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person." Now, I pointed out when we were studying that passage that this treatment of this particular type of sinner is different from the one that's out there that's never been to church, has never trusted Christ, and somebody that you might go out and try to win to the Lord. The treatment of this type of person is different. We don't have anything to do with them other than to try to bring them back into the fellowship of the church. So as I said, we don't go out with them. We don't do things with them. We don't, we don't treat them as... Uh, just our good old buddies that uh, nothing's really changed. Something has changed. And again, we undermine the authority of the church if we have anything to do with those kind of people that have been removed from the church fellowship. Now, we notice also that Paul said in that chapter, that uh, in the fifth verse of the chapter, he said, I delivered this person unto the destruction of the flesh. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, he spoke of another situation, and he said that he delivered those to Satan he said that they would learn not to blaspheme. Now, that tells us the terrible seriousness of this step, that exclusion is involved, chastisement is involved, sickness can be involved, death can be involved, and the Word of God says that even Satan can be involved because God will use Satan as an instrument of chastisement. Now, if you want to know what work I think Satan relishes the most, it would be that is that when he can have a free shot as a, at a Christian, 
I can't think of anything that Satan would want better than that. And God says that he removes that protection from the person. Not If he's saved, he doesn't lose his salvation, but he gets that protection that he would normally have removed from him, and Satan is able to, to be an instrument of chastisement. Well, I think we've fairly covered the command of excisive discipline, and I hope you do understand that there are biblical reasons for it. And we've kind of talked around the issue in describing what should be done. And we noted in Matthew chapter 18 that there is no mention of any particular type of sin there. I mean, there, there is no one set sin that it talks about in that 18th chapter. And so it leaves sin in the general category. And that's because in Matthew, Jesus is speaking mostly about private sins. He's speaking about things that would be committed within the membership against individuals, and these are personal things. And they're issues that would never reach it to the level of a church action unless there's just no other way to deal with it. I mean, if you can't be reconciled, if it can't be resolved, only then does that become a church action. But there are other sins that are not private sins. And they're not sins that are particularly against another member of the church, but they are public sins. And they require a different action they have to be dealt with. Now, some of those we might go through regular channels when we would use the steps there in Matthew 18 to resolve that kind of sin. But some sins are so egregious that they don't require any trial. They don't require any certain steps. And so the church can move immediately to move that, remove that person from the fellowship and then wait until later to see if they actually do repent. Well, that's the last part of the study, and it's too much for me to get into tonight. I'm not going to hold you as long as I made you think that I would. And so uh, we, we have to understand this, that there are types of sins that are mentioned in the scriptures that rise to the level of excisive discipline. We have to move quickly and we have to move decisively, but we're not always mandated to follow those steps that we find in Matthew chapter 18. And I think that you need to clearly understand that. That Matthew 18 is mostly about those are private offenses. And we take the scriptures out of the context if we try to squeeze all types of sin, everything that a person could do, public sins and so forth, if we try to squeeze them into that particular chapter, then we're actually misusing the word of God. So next week we're going to come back and look at this and we're going to talk about some different categories of church offenses. Uh, there are some sins that are more serious than others and they're sins that require a specific action. Now, before you get too worried about some of the things I might talk about, obviously, missing a church service is not as bad as killing somebody. I mean, there's, there's a different level to sins that we're talking about. And then there are sins that you commit in your mind, things that you think about that would be worse if you actually committed them to an action. And I think we do understand that. You know, one of the things the Bible teaches is that there are degrees of punishment in hell, and that's because there are differences in sins. There are degrees of rewards that are in heaven because some works are better than others. And we ought not to think that there's anything different when we deal with sin on the earth. That there are certain sins that hit a level that are in a category that are out there and they require a very special action from the church, an immediate reaction. Well, it's all sin. There aren't any excuses for it. We do know that. But there are degrees of sin, and we have to deal with those accordingly. So we're going to save that for next week. And we'll come back, and we'll devote some more time to the formative discipline part of this, meaning that I'll teach you about those sins that the Bible says we have to take an immediate action against. And if we don't do it, 
we're in violation of God's word. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we spend in your word tonight. And as always, as we look into your word, we we find truth. We find uh, things that we need to know, things that will help us in our Christian lives. We do need to understand the formative discipline. And we get this this teaching uh, down in our hearts that it will help us to eliminate so many problems that we have in the church. And we do want to be a church that preaches against sin. We do expect a holy membership. Uh, Lord, we have every right to expect that, and you've told us to keep the church pure. So help us to do that, Lord. Help every person in this room to be very, very careful about the things that we do, to always look to you, think before any action that we look to see, does this really honor and glorify God? And if it doesn't, help us to stay away from it. Bless us as we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org